Chris Ye is an entrepreneur, investor, and author. He co-wrote Blitzscaling with LinkedIn founder Reid Hoffman. Blitzscaling is a strategy for growing a company that has found product market fit. Blitzscaling prioritizes speed over efficiency, arguing that once product market fit is achieved, fast growth is necessary to achieve first scalar advantage. When a company is the first to scale successfully within a large market, that company gains access to a wealth of market opportunities that are not available to companies which are not at scale. Examples of successful blitzscalers include Airbnb, LinkedIn, Amazon, and Facebook. In the hypergrowth phases of these companies, there were deliberate strategic trade-offs that caused the company to suffer in the short term in exchange for the chance at market dominance in the long term. Blitzscaling is a broad strategic concept which manifests differently in different companies. When Airbnb was in its early stages of growth in 2011, the company was faced with the existential threat of a European competitor called Wimdu. Wimdu offered to sell to Airbnb, but this would have required the merger of two companies with distinctly different cultures. Instead, Airbnb chose to raise more money and rapidly expand into Europe. In contrast to this approach, Google's rapid path to becoming a dominant information service involved acquisitions that we now see as key Google products, including Android, Google Maps, and Google Earth. Through numerous examples in recent business history, Blitzscaling explores the fundamental trade-off between speed and efficiency, usually biasing speed as the preferable element. But Blitzscaling does not work for every company. In the food delivery sector, many companies which tried to Blitzscale ended up going out of business because they had lowered their prices too much in order to try to earn customer loyalty. By lowering their prices too much, the food delivery startups built businesses with fundamentally bad unit economics and a fickle customer base. In other cases, aggressive blitzscaling can work for a short period of time, but can cause a company's culture to suffer in ways that end up being very hard to repair. Blitzscaling can also cause problems in a core software product. Growing too quickly can cause a product to have a bloated user interface. Growing too quickly can also cause the back-end infrastructure layer to expand too quickly and expose sensitive data due to a lack of proper software security policies that otherwise would have been put into place. Chris Yeh joins the show to talk about the strategy of blitzscaling and his wide-ranging career. Chris studied creative writing and product design at Stanford before he joined D.E. Shaw, the famous quantitative hedge fund. Later, Chris became an investor and worked in several leadership roles in software companies. Chris's wide range of experiences make him an excellent author and conversationalist. We explored the ideas of both blitzscaling and his previous book, The Alliance, which lays out a modern vision for the dynamic between employers and employees. That book, The Alliance, has been particularly useful to me on a personal basis, both as an employer and as an employee. We also talked about investing, Dungeons and Dragons, and podcasting. Before we get to today's episode, I want to mention we're having a hackathon. You can find out about it by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon, 
The hackathon is for my new company, Find Collabs, which is a place to find collaborators and build projects. The in-person hackathon is this Saturday, April 6th at App Academy in San Francisco. You can find all those details at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon. We're going to hang out, build some projects, have some food, and it's going to be a lot of fun. I would love to see you there. But if you can't make it, you can still enter the hackathon remotely. It's a remote hackathon, and the entire hackathon ends on the 15th of April. So you've still got a few weeks to create your projects, find some collaborators, build some cool stuff. It doesn't have to just be a software product. You can build anything. You can write music, create art, create animations. Whatever kind of project you're looking for collaborators for, Find Collabs is a place where you can meet people and build those projects together. One project that has been gaining significant steam lately is Software Daily, which is a project to create a more social experience for Software Engineering Daily. You can find out about that by going to softwaredaily.com and see our progress. You can also go to the Find Collabs Software Daily collab and see how the collaboration is working. I want to thank David Sedrich and the Altology team for leading that effort on Software Daily. And with that said, let's get on to today's episode. Chris Yeh, you are the co-author of Blitzscaling. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. Blitzscaling is a book about growing a company, and it emphasizes the trade-off between speed and efficiency. Why are speed and efficiency often at odds? Well, if you think about how most people think about business, the assumption is stability. So at all times, traditional businesses are optimizing for efficiency, and they're making small tweaks. They're trying to make sure that they're able to deliver what Wall Street wants, which is 15% earnings growth per year, and they want stability and predictability. In contrast, split scaling occurs in these new markets where everything is up for grabs and where it's really important to be the first to scale. And under those circumstances, the kinds of techniques that have been developed to deliver steady 15% growth break down completely. And so blitzscaling is all about what happens when you're going to emphasize speed over efficiency as you grow. Give a success and failure example of companies that have tried to blitzscale. Absolutely. So some of the classic blitzscaling companies that we talk about in our book are companies like Airbnb, which have grown extremely rapidly from humble beginnings into world-changing companies. And with Airbnb, it followed a pattern that is actually quite common among blitzscaling companies. It didn't start growing right away. It actually took a considerable period of time for the founders to find their product market fit, to find their place in the world. And only then did they begin to rapidly scale up. And so blitzscaling is a technique that you apply at the right time when you're trying to win one of these markets. But then there's also companies that have been not so successful. 
And we have many of them in the history of Silicon Valley. One of the most famous ones that we talk about in the book is Webvan, the online grocery delivery service, which came out in the dot-com bubble and ultimately in the bust. And with Webvan, what they did is they went ahead and they absolutely prioritized speed over efficiency. They spent billions of dollars on robotic warehouses that were able to pack these groceries and and all these trucks that they own themselves and staff with drivers so they could deliver them. But ultimately, the main issue was that market wasn't necessarily blitz scalable. Being the first to get people to order online groceries didn't mean that you were the choice that they're always going to use. It didn't confer a long-term advantage. And these markets that people blitz scale in, they tend to be so big it makes me wonder, why is it so important to be the first to scale? Why not let somebody else be the first to scale, let them take the first bullets, and then you can come in and have a late mover advantage? Well, that's one of the interesting things. So what we call the first scaler advantage is not the first mover advantage. And in fact, if you look at the history of great technology companies, very few of them are truly the first mover. Apple is not the first mover in personal computers. It's not the first mover in MP3 players. It's not the first movers in phones and so on and so forth. What they are able to do is become the first to reach that critical scale. And in fact, what we argue is that the reason critical Critical scale matters is because of factors like network effects, where if you are a winner take most or winner take all market, the first to scale achieves lasting, enduring market leadership. And you can see that with companies like eBay, where it is a two sided auction marketplace, and eBay very quickly became the leader in scale and fended off challenges from some of the most powerful companies in the world. Even as eBay was growing and had achieved this scale, there were companies like Amazon and Yahoo who were coming in and trying to set up their own competing auction services, and yet eBay was able to see them all off. You describe this environment that we're now in where everything is rife with uncertainty, and the way to cope with that level of uncertainty is through this blitzscaling model of prioritizing speed over efficiency. What were the necessary preconditions to getting to this state that we now find ourselves in? Was it cheap cloud infrastructure? Was it mobile? Was it better fundraising environments? Why did we get to where we are? All of the above, essentially. If you want to think about the origins, it really starts with the internet itself, which has been behind so much of what's happened over the past 20 and 30 years. And what the internet did is it created this massive network and really a network of networks, plugging everyone into something that connected us all together. Before then, most businesses were really local. And if they were national or global, they were national or global based on a brand and advertising and things like that. In this day and age, we're all connected together. I can actually use my phone, pull it out of my pocket and communicate with anyone in any continent in the world, even Antarctica. 
which is pretty astonishing. And because everyone is connected together into this network, there are more and more of these network effects. And the different effects that you mentioned just increase that. So when you talk about the reduction in cost in cloud computing and cloud computing infrastructure, that means there are more competitors. That means it's easier for people to get started. It's easier to scale, which means it's important to scale even faster. On the mobile side, the fact that people are now intimately connected to these networks and are basically using that as the first and last resort when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to shopping, that again, increases the value of those markets and also increases the pace of adoption, which again, makes speed even more important. Blitzscaling affects the marketing, the engineering, the recruiting, the fundraising, the sales process. It affects everything in an organization if you consciously say, I am blitzscaling. Describe some of the lower level tactical changes that are going to go on in a company that's blitzscaling. Well, one of the main areas that we focus on in the book, and it's because it's something that we care about, we talk about it before in our previous book, The Alliance, is the people management element of things. And the people management element of blitzscaling is really difficult for people to grasp if they're used to traditional best practices around how you actually manage. And one of the counterintuitive principles of blitzscaling that we lay out there is what we call tolerate bad management. Now, that sounds kind of crazy. Nobody ever says, I want there to be bad management. And we do want to emphasize, we said bad management in quotes, and that does not mean criminal management. But what we do mean is that in an environment where the market is shifting rapidly, where your company is growing 300% a year, a lot of the traditional tools of people management, like having a careful 360-degree annual feedback and review process, are going to go by the wayside. And in fact, one of the biggest strains on a company during blitzscaling growth is the fact that there is so much change that the company is rapidly growing from what we call a family into a tribe, into a village, into a city, into a nation. And at each of those stages, which may only last a year or two, it's going to change the nature of the company. And it's going to be something that requires a huge adjustment on the part of the founders and management and oftentimes requires new people to come into the company and old people who may decide to leave as a result of it no longer being the kind of environment that they want to be in. There's a surplus of capital flowing into Silicon Valley. And if I have a company with some product market fit, I can raise a lot of money really quickly in this current environment. Is there a correlation between how cheaply I can raise money and how fast I should blitzscale? Yes, but the correlation isn't necessarily what people would think. So the correlation is basically that if it's easy for you to raise money, it's easier for competitors to raise money. One of the points that we want to make is that blitzscaling is relative, not absolute. So nowhere in the book do we say, you must grow at at least 200% a year to be considered blitzscaling. We don't have a metric like that. And that's because the objective of blitzscaling is to be the first to critical scale, which means the measure is not how quickly am I growing? It's how quickly am I growing relative to the competition, which is why you can blitzscale both in boom times like the ones we're in now or in bad times. The key question is not how fast am I growing? It's how much faster am I growing than the other people in this marketplace so that I can become the first to scale. And so in an environment like this where capital is readily available, 
everyone has to scale faster. But at the end of the day, only one person, one entity, one company is going to be the first to scale and achieve that lasting and enduring market leadership. And so if it's easy to raise money, you have to be even more aggressive because your competitors can be more aggressive. Let's say I'm an engineering manager within a company that's blitz scaling. The directors of engineering that are working above me are totally overworked. Their inboxes are overflowing. They're missing their one-on-ones with me. The engineers that are working below me on my product team are missing deadlines. Their queues of bugs are overflowing. Everything feels chaotic. What kinds of adjustments can I make to my management strategy in my personal life? Oh, that's a great question. So I was prepared for the management question. The personal life, that's really an excellent topic. So let's tackle those each in turn. The management side is probably easier than the personal side, so we'll tackle that first. On the management side, it is an exercise in firefighting. And one of the counterintuitive rules we lay out there is what we say, let fires burn. And what this means is that you are existing in a chaotic period of the company's growth, and there is no way for you to eliminate all of that chaos. Your goal instead should be to prioritize and figure out where you can actually do something and where you can't. What's going to be immediate and urgent, and what is something that can be deferred until later on, even if it is really important. And in the case of engineering, one of the things that people, I think, hate is accumulating technical debt. And yet... In this environment, it is an art to be able to understand when can we accumulate technical debt in order to move faster, and then how do we know when the time is right for us to pay down that debt? So from a management perspective, you reset your expectations around perfection, and you say, I'm expecting imperfection, I'm expecting chaos. My job as an engineering manager, looking up to the people above me, looking down to the people below me, is to have a strong sense of what the priority is, to be able to triage like an ER doctor who can be saved and who cannot, and to make things happen on an incredibly rapid pace. Now, I mentioned the ER doctor because that ties in really well on the personal side. Because famously, if you've ever watched any of these television shows or you have someone in your life who's an ER doctor, it is an incredibly stressful occupation. And it's no wonder that if you watch these doctors on TV, they're always having affairs and drinking and so on and so forth. Now, I I kid, I kid. But from a personal perspective, you have to understand if you're taking on this additional chaos in your professional life, risk homeostasis says you should try to seek some stability in your personal life. And a big part of this is making sure that there are things in your life that you care about, that you enjoy. And of course, It can be difficult at times when you have this giant stack of bugs that you've got to get to, when you've got this giant stack of priorities, when there's never enough time to do things, but you still have to find time for those activities that actually make you happy. You're going to need some time for that, whether it is for your family, whether it is time with your friends, or even a hobby. And I'm not going to say, yes, you're going to be able to have this great work-life balance. The nature of blitzscaling is it tends to be unbalanced. You're trying to outrun someone. Usually it's difficult to out-sprint someone while you're relaxing. So you are going to be a little unbalanced there. But make sure that you find a few core things that you prioritize and triage and have at least a few things that provide that stability to offset that incredible chaos that you're dealing with. You take somebody like Jack Dorsey, 
I don't know if you know, but he's he's been going on a podcast tour lately. Have you seen that? I haven't seen his podcast tour. Tell me more. It's actually pretty interesting. Has he gone on this podcast yet? No, not yet. We got to get him. <laughs> Definitely. But he's done five or six hours of Joe Rogan and then five or six hours across several other podcasts. And he's just doing long form podcast discussions. And he, he talks a lot about his life and how he manages Square and Twitter at the same time. Square and Twitter are both companies, you know, you could argue Twitter might be beyond its blitzscaling stage. Square still feels like it's got a lot of, quote, blitzscaling mileage in it. And he talks about his life. He meditates for two hours a day. He gets nine hours of sleep. It sounds like he has really programmed a level of balance that allows him to sustain working on two companies at the same time. To some degree, it sounds very wise, but to another degree, it's like, are the companies growing as fast as the shareholders would need them to or would like them to? You know, how permissive would you be in a CEO's assertiveness towards work-life balance? So I think that if somebody is able to deliver results, then there should be no problem with whatever choices they make in terms of how they live their life. And I'm enormously envious of anyone who is able to sleep nine hours a day, meditate for two hours a day, and run two publicly traded companies. It just doesn't seem possible. And you can contrast that with another Joe Rogan podcast guest, Elon Musk, who instead of talking about how he is sleeping nine hours a day, meditating two hours a day, is instead telling Joe while smoking marijuana about, you know, how he's sleeping on the floor of the assembly plant and getting by on like four hours of sleep a night and obsessed and and never stopping working. So I find it fascinating that it's possible to do both. I would say that you mentioned that Twitter is beyond its blitzscaling stage. I would say that is true. So Twitter, one of the things we talk about in the book is when do you stop blitzscaling? Because there are times when it makes sense now focus on efficiency. And in the case of Twitter, it really came about because their user growth began to slow down. And they kept going because their revenues were still increasing, but the user growth is the leading indicator. Because ultimately as a network, your value is based on the number of people in the network. And if your user growth is flat, then while you may harvest more of the value, you clearly are not in a position to sacrifice efficiency for the sake of further growth if that growth isn't available. So I would say that in the case of Jack, I don't know him personally. I definitely now want to go and listen to some of his podcasts and and, and learn more about this. But it has been my experience that most people who are in this position are not able to do what Jack has done. The other thing I think is fascinating is the fact that he's going on podcasting. I do think one of the amazing things is podcasting as a medium is growing so quickly and has such a huge impact. And as a leader like Jack to go on a podcast, you know, especially if you have a consumer facing company, you can reach so many more people with a podcast than almost any other medium other than perhaps network television. But with a podcast, you can go long form. It's an intimate experience. People feel like they get to know you. So I feel like more leaders should be doing the kind of thing that Jack is doing, going on long form podcasts and getting the message out there. Can you blitz scale a podcast? That is the question that everyone's trying to figure out. I think that it is possible to blitz scaling to, to blitz scale 
some of the elements of podcasting and a company that I had my eye on for some time and there's it's been in the news recently is anchor.fm which is a company that was devoted to democratizing podcasting making it easier for a lot of people to sign up and do a podcast that was the thing that convinced me to try doing my own podcast because with anchor you can do it as a self-contained thing you can do it as simply as just using your phone although that's not the way i do it because the quality isn't quite as good And Anchor was one of these companies where I said, this is going to be very interesting. It could be the WordPress or automatic of podcasting if it does things correctly. Now, of course, what ended up happening is Spotify saw it and said, let's buy that instead, which is a classic thing. And Spotify, I think, is trying to blitzscale podcasting. And I think that Spotify's approach is we have this enormous market. We are synonymous with music for so many people. We want to now take podcasting and make it as ubiquitous as music. And so I think Spotify is the company that is now trying to blitzscale podcasting. Except it'll turn it into the YouTube of podcasting rather than the WordPress of podcasting. That's what it seems like, but we'll have to see. I think that one of the things that people have to do, and one of the great things about WordPress is not only is it for the beginner, but it's powerful enough to continue serving people even as they build these enormous audiences. To some extent, YouTube is that as well. And I would love to see a tool which really is democratic in that sense. There are blitzscaling businesses like WeWork, like Uber, like Tesla. And the future of these businesses is hard to understand by looking at a balance sheet. So as an investor or as an employee of the company, it can be really hard to figure out the true economics Mm -hmm. of your business. How big of a problem is that? Like, does it matter? Is it a problem that a company will sometimes initiate blitzscaling. Like, you take food delivery, right? Food delivery was probably blitzscaled prematurely, but it's hard, you know, you look at food delivery compared to WeWork or Uber, it it would have been hard to know the difference if you were in the middle of it at the time. How do you know the difference between a business that has unit economics that are going to work at scale and a business that, has unit economics that are not going to scale when it's too complex to actually do the forward-looking accounting today. Yes. So one of the things that's very difficult about these markets is doing the forward accounting is a challenge because there's so much uncertainty. And so much of what you're betting on is actually the development of the market. There was a famous example we use in the book of a professor of finance at NYU, Oswat Demotoron, who analyzed Uber and said this company can never be worth more than $1 billion based on if it gets 10% of the global taxi market, it will be worth $1 billion. The issue, of course, is that the market for Uber and ride hailing is ultimately much larger than the taxi market. The market itself has changed and the company has played a major role in changing that market. But what we argue in the book is that you can look at the blitz scalability of the business and assess for yourself as an art, not a science, mind you, but assess for yourself whether or not it makes sense. And there what we're looking for is a big future market. We're looking for massive distribution so you can get it into people's hands, some sort of scalable distribution, either by riding on top of an existing network or by building in virality or other mechanisms like that. 
High gross margins, ultimate gross margins, because even if the unit economics don't make sense today, can they make sense in the future? What assumptions have to be correct in order for those unit economics to work? And finally, those network effects or other kinds of long-term competitive advantage. So if you look at something like WeWork, for example, the core economics of WeWork actually make a lot of sense. And the core economics of WeWork are, we are going to convince human beings to accept 50% as much space. We're going to get people to crowd twice as many people into an office and like it. And then we're going to charge 50% more per square foot. And so that is the fundamental WeWork economic model. It's we can compress more people into a given space and therefore we can give them a discount or charge them slightly less and still make more money. And looking at that model, the big question then becomes, well, where's the long-term competitive advantage? And a big part of what they're trying to do is to A, lock in the attractive locations in the various cities, B, build out that global network so that they can now serve the needs of their biggest customers, which are companies like Accenture, which are looking to house their workers in all these mobile places around the world. And then C, you know, do we actually ultimately build a, a brand, a community that people want to be a part of? And I think the jury is still out. There are people who believe that WeWork will not work. And meanwhile, there's people like SoftBank who are betting very heavily that it will. And I have not looked at it closely enough to make my final prediction. But I will say that there is an underlying economic model. When there isn't an underlying economic model, then there's trouble. Uh, in the case of Uber, for example, the interesting thing about Uber's market dynamics are, as you can see by the success of Lyft here in the United States, it's not truly a winner-take-all market. Once you get it can be an oligopoly because once you get enough liquidity such that you can get a car in five minutes or less, it doesn't really matter how many more drivers you have on the road. And so Uber and Lyft have actually sort of created this duopoly in the United States. And meanwhile, Uber has strong competition all around the world. The unit economics of ride hailing are ultimately dependent on autonomous vehicles. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens Right now, they're all operating at a loss. They're subsidizing rides. They're doing all this because the notion is someday we'll be able to strip out the cost. The cost will be an order of magnitude lower because we'll have autonomous vehicles and we'll only be limited by the cost of electricity and the cost of capital. But you know, what will those dynamics simply carry over? Right? Will it just be the case that all of a sudden Uber and Lyft will reduce their cost structures by a factor of 10, but then reduce their prices by a factor of 10? Yeah. And it comes back to, I mean, this is another way of looking at the uncertainty side of blitzscaling, the fact that the uncertainty of the business models of Uber and Lyft is so pervasive. We don't know what the impact of Waymo will be. We don't know what would happen if Amazon acquired autonomous driving technology and started setting up driving networks in different cities. We don't know. And the public markets don't know either. But there's enough potential upside in the yes case, the the case that yes, Uber and Lyft do maintain some duopolistic characteristics, that the public markets are going to believe enough and they're going to make their wagers. So it's almost like another way of looking at the uncertainty model is the public markets are going to view it uncertainly as an uncertain business with massive potential gains, with massive expected value, makes it a good opportunity to be an employee at one of these companies in light of the IPO 
regardless of whether or not the business has true good economics in the limit. Correct. And as an individual employee, your focus should be on, you know, is this a company that I want to be a part of? Is this a company whose name I want on my resume? And is this a company or rather on my LinkedIn profile since who just resumes anymore? And more importantly, what are the economic impacts? Because it absolutely is true. When you look at the individual lens at the end of the day, it's great if the company does wonderfully, but you've got to pay for a family, education, mortgage, all those different things. Another thing that I think is interesting, and again, I am not a finance expert, but you can think about companies like Uber as being options. Right? There's a classic Black-Scholes model for pricing options. And the interesting thing about pricing options is that the higher the volatility of the underlying security, the more valuable the option is. And so in some interesting sense, the volatility of the industry actually increases the value that a finance professor could assign to these companies. Yeah. Because the worst case scenario is you lose your investment the best case scenario is you 10x your investment or 100x although or 100x. at this point if you're investing in an uber ipo at 80 billion dollars or something like that getting to 100x will require an 8 trillion company 8 trillion dollar company that will be challenging the alliance was a favorite book of mine i read it several years ago and before i started software engineering daily i i was moving between a lot of jobs and I did not find a satisfactory alliance with any of the employers. You know, that was my fault as much as or more than, than theirs. If I'm running a blitzscaling company, I want entrepreneurial employees. I want entrepreneurial people in my organization. But by definition, those people are going to be fickle. You know, if I am hiring entrepreneurial people... They probably want to start their own thing someday. How do I create an alliance between myself and the fickle entrepreneurial employees that I need in a blitzscaling organization? Yes, the model of the alliance is particularly suited to blitzscaling in this sense, which is that the impermanence is a built-in feature of the company. If a company is going to go from 10 employees to 10,000 employees over the course of five years, it is quite likely that somebody who loves being a part of the company at the 10-employee phase is not necessarily going to be as enamored of it at the 10,000-employee phase. And so it's important to acknowledge that employment is impermanent and that one of the goals should be to have a great relationship with all your employees, even when they're no longer your employees. Now, the key when you're blitzscaling in applying the alliance is understanding that the terms of the alliance are really going to focus around the stages of blitzscaling. So you might say, we are currently at the village stage of blitzscaling, which is to say we have tens of employees. And our goal here is to get from, let's say, 1 million a year in revenues to 10 million a year in revenues. And that becomes part of the mission that's in the tour of duty. Here are the things that you can accomplish as an employee that will help us achieve that goal. And Getting to that point provides a very useful point to say, okay, now let's see if an additional alliance makes sense. Is this still a company that you want to be a part of? Is this still a part of your career trajectory? And so the fact that there are these stages of blitzscaling and the fact there are these very clear goals, I think makes the alliance even more applicable. If you were to rewrite the alliance today, what would you add to it? So one of the things that has come up from the various audiences that I've spoken with 
has always been similar to what you said, which is, hey, I'm interested in finding an alliance. How do I develop that alliance with my manager? How do I bring this up? And the answer can't just be buy them a copy of the alliance and give them the book. I would love that for that to be the answer. I'd love everyone to do that. But for me, that came up a lot with the audiences. And I thought about it and I said, you know, what it boils down to is that you want to start with something where people are not going to disagree. There's an old strategy in negotiating, which is to just get as many yeses as possible, right? Each yes is going to increase the momentum. Each no has almost 10x the impact of a yes. So you really got to try to stack those yeses up. And in the context of getting people to buy into the alliance, the easiest thing to stack on is to say, every employee should know what their mission is. You don't have to go to every part of the alliance, which is to say, we're going to have a formal tour of duty. We acknowledge the impermanence of employment. Sometimes managers are uncomfortable with that. But every manager should be comfortable with the notion that as an employee, you should know what your mission is and how it's going to benefit the company. Because at the end of the day, having that clarity is probably the most important thing to getting you the ability to actually succeed. And if you are successful on the job, then that's going to lead to more opportunities and make you more employable. So start with the notion of every employee should know what mission they're on. You were at D.E. Shaw for many years. Was D.E. Shaw a blitzscaling company? So during the time that I was at D.E. Shaw, I would say that it had just come out of a blitzscaling period. Uh, D.E. Shaw, for those of you who don't know, is a famed secretive quantitative hedge fund. It was started by a professor named David Shaw, who is a computer science professor. He has degrees from Columbia and Stanford University. And the core approach of the company is to recruit the smartest people in the world. And at the time they would go, and, and I think they still do this, they would go get the graduation programs of the top universities in the world, find all the people who had gotten honors and magna cum laude, and just reach out to them. And that's how they found me. And when I joined the company, I think it had about 500 employees. And by the time I left, it had about 750 employees. So during that time period, it was not growing nearly as rapidly. But before then, in the immediate five years prior, I think the company had grown from something like 20 people to 500 people. So it just come off a blitzscaling period. What's your greatest lesson from David Shaw? I think the greatest lesson I learned is just get the best people. It is amazing what incredible people can do. They assembled this phenomenal lineup of folks. Obviously, the most famous alum of D.E. Shaw and Company at this point is Jeff Bezos, the world's richest man. But there were so many brilliant people at D.E. Shaw who I've stayed in touch with, who've gone on to massive success in, in all these different areas. And it just reinforced for me the power of being able to gather together an amazing team of talent. Did D.E. Shaw employ the tools of the alliance? I would say that it did not at that point. I think that D.E. Shaw basically made the argument that this is a place where you get to work with the smartest people in the world, where you get to pay, get paid a lot of money, and where if you're successful, you can get paid even more money. So it's very traditional in that Wall Street sense. Uh, I will say one of the interesting things is even though the alliance was many years away from me, the way I departed the company was very much in keeping with the alliance. So I had worked at the company since graduating from Stanford. And one of the things I wanted to do in my career journey was to 
to then go on to business school. This was not something I thought about when I was an undergraduate, but after getting into DE Shaw and working in the world of business, I, just, I said, I really want to get that broad grounding in business that an MBA can provide. And so I actually applied to Harvard Business School. And in doing so, that meant I needed to get recommendations from my managers. So I was very upfront with them. And I told them, this is what I'm looking to do. Here's why I think it's going to be important to me. Can you help me? Even though, of course, I'm sure you would like me to stay at this company. Are you willing to prioritize the relationship over the sort of short-term value of saying, yes, I want Chris to still be here and doing stuff for me. And to their credit, my managers did just that. They also ran it further up the ladder because there were key questions around where are people going to be located, which offices they're going to be in, what initiatives are they going to be staffed on? And I said, sure, you know, take it all the way up the, the ladder to the managing directors if need be. I trust you guys. And ultimately, I did get into Harvard Business School. And once I got in, I let folks know. And I said, listen, you know, I'm going to be leaving and it's starting in the fall, but it's April now. And I'll keep working for the company as long as you guys need me to work up till the point at which I'm going to get married, go on my honeymoon and go to business school. And so as a result, I stayed on. I think effectively I gave four months notice to the company, which is something the company was very grateful for. And they actually in turn said, you know, as a surprise to me without even upfront telling me about about this at the end of my time they said by the way you know thank you so much for everything that you've done thank you for how you've handled all this and we're going to pay you a prorated bonus for this year even though you're leaving because we want you to stay a, a part of our family so that was an example of something where i think that everyone involved uh, did things the right way in a very honest and open way and it worked out great for everyone did you meet bezos while you were there no, he had left about 18 months before I arrived. I had a number of friends who did know him. And after the non-poach agreement expired, they then left D.E. Shaw and went to Amazon and did quite well for themselves. <laughs> so I've always wondered what would have happened if I had known Jeff, but sadly, I did not. You're a literary guy. You studied creative writing in college. There's the famous McKinsey Bezos one star review of Amazon of uh, the, everything the, every, the everything store, where she said this is mostly false. Brad Stone took a lot of creative license in telling the story of Bezos. Do you know to what degree there was creative license taken, or does it even matter? I mean, if you're retelling a dramatic story, it doesn't doesn't every business biographer take some creative license? Yes. And the way I explain this to people is this. I often ask people when they say, well, what should I believe? What should I not believe? And I tell them, have you ever been covered in a news story or has a friend of yours been covered in a news story? And they say, yes. And I say, great. When that story came out and you read it, did you think that they got everything right or did you think that they got everything wrong? And they'll say, oh yeah, they got almost everything wrong. I'm like, okay, great. What makes you think your experience is unique? So the fact is that storytelling is ultimately subjective in many ways. There are objective things that you can say. Jeff Bezos and McKenzie founded Amazon at this time. These people worked for Amazon. The things she's objecting to are not those facts. It's the interpretation of those facts. And those facts are always going to be subject to interpretation, right? In terms of, well, who was really important? Who played this critical role? Different people can have different memories. They can have 
uh, complete 100% confidence and two smart, honorable people can have completely different recollections of the same event. Until we have a time machine that allows us to go back and watch everything on instant replay, we'll never know. My first job out of school was at an options trading place, and I spent about five months there before I left. And the reason I left was because I would come into work every day and I would look at Hacker News and I would see people building new stuff. And I would contrast that with what I was doing in the trading world. And it, we were building stuff, but I felt like we were building a better mousetrap. It felt like we were just kind of playing this big poker game rather than the people in Silicon Valley who were actually making new games entirely. Can you tell me about your shift from finance into entrepreneurship in the startup world? And and was there a psychological shift that caused you to make that change? Yes. And I think that it very much is in keeping with your experience. So the core business of D.E. Shaw is proprietary trading, and the firm is phenomenally good at that. And that is the revenue stream that powered the entire company. In many ways, I compare it to Google and its AdWords franchise. There is a core business that throws off enormous amounts of cash that basically allows the company to do everything else. And in the case of D.E. Shaw, I never had a desire to be part of that core engine, even though it would be enormously lucrative to do so. And for me, it was the same thing. At the end of the day, I feel like I want to help people who are making things, not help people who are just moving numbers around. And I compare it to the river of money. I always say it's as if there's a river of money. And the objective of the financial industry is to direct that river to put locks in, to dam it in certain places, to form a pond, in other places to run it through some sort of turbine to generate electricity. But at the end of the day, it's just redirecting the water. And by the way, when you're right by the river, it's easy to dip your own bucket in and take some for yourself. But they're not adding the water, right? The water is coming about because of the springs and the snowpack melting. And when it comes to creating things, that's what I want to be a part of. And so it was something along those lines. Now, again, I had a a great time at D.E. Shaw. And part of what allowed me to stay there as long as I did is that I was working on the company's startup initiative. So it was very much more Silicon Valley-like. But at the end of the day, it just struck me that when you're working on a team and everyone is compensated based on Wall Street principles as opposed to Silicon Valley principles. I just think that Silicon Valley principles where everyone owns a piece of the equity is a better way of approaching uh, motivation and incentive and and getting everyone to really buy into this all-out effort. You were CEO of Ustream in 2007. This was live video streaming very early, before Twitch, before YouTube Live, before Facebook Live. Tell me about that experience. And this was, again, blitzscaling before blitzscaling existed. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. But it was. It absolutely was. And these are some of the experiences that that uh, have stayed with me. Right. So in the case of Ustream, what had happened was we were in the middle of the Web 2.0 boom. And at the time, I was running marketing for an enterprise software company called Symphonic. But I was also dabbling in making angel investments in consumer uh, consumer internet companies and, and staying in touch with the whole community. And I felt like this boom was going to end before I took a shot on goal. 
And so one of the things I wanted to do was I was actively looking for some way to take one more shot on goal in this particular boom. Because I'd taken my shot on goal during the dot-com boom, did not succeed that time, and I wanted to take another shot. And so Ustream came across my desk through one of my friends from business school who said, hey, these guys reached out to me about an investment. I don't know this tech stuff. You do. Can you talk to them and tell me if I should invest? And I talked to the founders and I saw the demo and I said, wow, I think there's something really powerful to this live streaming. And I think that it could actually be enormous. And I think that maybe this is the shot on goal I'm going to take during this turn of the cycle. And so I ended up partnering with the founders of the company first as an advisor and their first investor. I got my friend who introduced me to invest as well. And then later as the CEO to help them raise their first million dollars. And it was very much in my mind that even though I didn't know them at the time as the principles of blitzscaling, but the principles were there, was this going to be a huge market? My intuition was yes, absolutely. I think that live is going to be maybe not as big as recorded in terms of number of hours, but it's going to be really important in terms of engagement and value. In terms of distribution, is there a way to get this out there? Uh, I think that one of the key things that had happened at the time for a live video service is that Twitter had become popular and Twitter was essentially the mechanism by which people who were going to broadcast live video let the world know about themselves because it was something that was very up to the minute. Then we think about gross margins. That was the interesting one. So at the time, you could actually chart the cost of bandwidth. And knowing the online advertising market very well and knowing the cost of bandwidth, I could see this will not work right now. But thanks to Moore's Law, it will work sometime in the next 18 to 24 months. And so my objective with Ustream was in order to be the leader in 18 to 24 months, when the economics actually become viable, we need to get out there now because like YouTube, it's a two-sided marketplace. There's audience and there's creators, and we cannot wait until the economics are right to build up that two-sided marketplace. We need to go now in order to make it happen because there are network effects associated with that. And so that's how that company came about to help them raise their first million dollars. And, and watch the company go on to a fair amount of success. It was acquired by IBM in 2016. Although ultimately, one of the clever things that Twitch did was really focus on the emerging market of video game streaming, which I think is like the dominant form of video content today, which was nothing in 2007. So there were some early indications. I was very intrigued by it, but give credit to the folks at Twitch for going 100% into it. Do you think of Y Combinator as an organization that has blitzscaled? That is a really interesting question. I do think that there are elements of blitzscaling to what Y Combinator has done. Clearly, they have scaled up rapidly. Clearly, they have made some sacrifices of efficiency. The fact is, when you have a cohort of 200 plus startups, it becomes inefficient for uh, investors to come to a demo day, all these things. There's a lot more friction that's introduced than when it was a much smaller organization. But their goal is, the interesting thing about their goal is their goal is not necessarily market leadership in the classic blitzscaling sense. Their goal is impact. And I think their sense is we can have a greater impact if we scale up, even if it's less efficient 
we are having more and more of an impact. And so therefore, that's the reason why we're scaling inefficiently. So I think in, you could argue that they are blitz scaling, but their motivation is slightly different than a classic blitz scaling motivation. Is it possible to blitz scale a restaurant? It's possible to blitz scale a restaurant if you're going to blitz scale a chain. An individual restaurant location can never get to the kind of scale that would justify blitz scaling. But clearly, Outlets like McDonald's, Starbucks, and some of these new emerging restaurants fit into the category of, yes, there is a chance to blitz scale, especially in the case of Starbucks. You're like, nobody else is in this current premium coffee category. Our goal has to be to get a store on every block. And I think that there was a famous Saturday Night Live sketch in which the Starbucks has a Starbucks inside the bathroom of the Starbucks to make sure (laughs) that you never are far enough from a Starbucks. But that's an example of blitz scaling because the whole thing is they created a new category. It was wide open and that was their chance to lock in the market. Yeah. You studied product design and creative writing, as I alluded to earlier. When you were in college, what kind of books did you imagine yourself writing? You know, when I was in college, there were a a couple of different things that I wrote about in terms of creative writing. And what was interesting is I feel like the experience of doing creative writing in college helped shape the kind of author that I became. So I think like most people growing up, I preferred fiction. And I love read both, both fiction and nonfiction. But, you know, the the dream would be to be someone like a George R. R. Martin or a J.K. Rowling who's writing this fiction that that touches all these different lives. Now, in college, in college creative writing courses, you're generally not focused on genre fiction, a la science fiction or fantasy. You're focused on literary fiction. And what I found was though I could write literary fiction, the process was very challenging for me. There was a lot of friction. It was a struggle. But I actually ended up taking a couple of courses where I was writing more nonfiction. And that flowed far more easily. And one of my principles in life is to say, well, look, you know, there are certain things I'm just going to naturally be better at than others. I should, if possible, look at the things that I'm naturally good at and see how those intersect with what the world wants and then focus on those things rather than the things where I'm struggling. So from a literary fiction standpoint, I was struggling, even though I had the ability from a nonfiction standpoint that was flowing easily. So I pretty much intuited I was probably going to be a nonfiction author. Although I still have in the back of my mind, maybe someday I'll go back because I have friends who are uh, fiction authors who write young adult dystopian novels and things like that. And their book signings are way more interesting than mine because they have these teenagers dressed up in costumes. And I just have business people and CEOs saying, yeah, that was great. Did you get into the world of kind of mid late 90s? postmodern fiction, like the David Foster Wallace's and the Jonathan Franzen's and other kind of people who are exploring, I guess the people who came before that, like Pynchon. Did, Did you get into that world? I did. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite classes, my favorite writing classes at Stanford was taught by the late, great Gil Sorrentino, and it focused on experimental fiction. So we studied folks like Pynchon. We studied folks like Italo Calvino, who wrote some famous books like Imaginary Cities. And one of the things that really taught me this core lesson that I have continued to apply and share with others is that constraint breeds creativity. And that was something we saw in product design and it was something we saw in this experimental fiction. In experimental fiction, you might do something like 
how can I write a story without ever using the letter E? Or it might be, here are a set of pictures that I've clipped out of magazines. I threw them randomly on the ground. They're now in a particular order. I need to tell a story that goes from point A to point B to point C and so on and so forth. And that carried over not just in writing, but also to the improvisational comedy side. I was very involved in that when I was in college, the whose line is it anyway style comedy. And all of those taught me that constraint breeds creativity. And so when a company is starting out and they say, oh, if only we had more money, if only we had this, if only we had that, I tell them, listen, this is the thing that's going to help you succeed. You are constrained, but you are going to be forced to be more creative. When a big company sets out to do something, they throw money at the problem. And as a result, they take the conventional path. You're going to be forced to take the unconventional path, and that's going to help you succeed. What are the career benefits to playing Dungeons and Dragons? So there are a couple of career benefits, I would say. The first is Dungeons and Dragons really is improvisational storytelling. And any skill when it comes to improvisational storytelling, being able to play a role is going to help you in management because one of the things you have to do is to constantly make decisions without all the information. You're on the spot, but it's so important to make a decision, any decision. And playing Dungeons and Dragons is like being in an improvisational comedy group. You are constantly forced to make decisions. I think the other element that's interesting is that it really is an activity that binds together so many people from different generations. And I've actually been playing in a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, and I'm the oldest member of the campaign. Some of the members of the campaign are still in high school. And it's just fascinating that we who have such different lives, literally some of them are younger than my children, uh, can actually gather together around a table, build a story together. And it really helps drive home that sense of, you know, you can have these very diverse communities coming together as a team to do something amazing. Let's say... Two CEOs come in to pitch businesses to you sequentially. The first CEO that comes in is pitching a business, and he also says, yeah, my background, I've played Dungeons and Dragons for 20 years. And you're like, oh, you know, I'm really impressed with your business, and I love the fact that you played Dungeons and Dragons for 20 years because I, I see a lot of value in that experience. You say, well, I'll get back to you. He leaves the office. Somebody who comes in, looks exactly like the person who just pitched you. They're pitching a business that's almost exactly the same. Imagine Uber and Lyft. Except they say, I've played chess for 20 years. They give you almost the same pitch, and you say, hmm, okay, well, I'll get back to you. You can't invest in both. Which one do you invest in? So I would invest in the first entrepreneur for the following reason. And it's not just Dungeons and Dragons prejudice. Uh, it's really the nature of the games themselves. So if you think about it, Dungeons and Dragons has a couple of things that are very important. First, it's a very complex system. There are rule sets. There are endless books. There's a lot of debate. The rules are not necessarily that certain. And the rules can actually change from table to table. And ultimately, it's a team game. And it's not about individual achievement. It's about the ability to work with others in order to achieve a common goal. Chess, on the other hand, has a very circumscribed and deterministic rule set. That's not the way the world works. And chess is a one-on-one, -on -one, mano a mano or womano on a womano game where you are not collaborating with someone else, but rather competing head to head. And so even though people have this vision of the chess master and thinking ahead and doing all these different things, the fact is entrepreneurship is a team sport. And I prefer the person who enjoys being on a team to the person who prefers to be the lone individual. There are so many 
newer games that you could play rather than Dungeons and Dragons or chess for that matter. Are you a fan of any newer games? So one thing you could say is that Dungeons and Dragons is actually fairly new because the fifth edition just came out in 2014. So it hasn't been around for that long. But of course, the game itself traces its way back to the 1970s. I think that I simply have focused on Dungeons and Dragons because it's the game of my youth, but there are a tremendous number of, of great games that have come out there. I also like to play traditional party games. So word games and things like that. There's one called Word on the Street that I play a lot. I've also played the, the cranium games sure. where there's a performative aspect as well. Yeah. So I think that, you know, you should just try to find the game that really fits for you. Uh, but I do tend to prefer games that are games where I'm interacting with other people, at least in a semi-cooperative manner, as opposed to like an, uh, I've never been interested in say a solo computer game where I'm just going to spend the time by myself. Even when I was playing those, like the mist style games in the ancient days, in the 1990s, I would always be sitting with a friend and we'd be doing it together. Yeah. I, I played magic for probably 17 years and I, you know, it's a game with sufficient depth reaches a certain point where it's almost like a, the religion you grew up with and it'll continue to compound and there's not another game that could replace it. By the way, I have not played Magic the Gathering, but now thanks to the Dungeons and Dragons Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica supplement, oh. which is a Dungeons and Dragons Magic the Gathering crossover, really? I've been learning more about Magic the Gathering as a result. So they're both owned, but both brands are owned by Wizards of the Coast up in Seattle, and they actually have done this crossover where you can play Dungeons and Dragons in the Magic the Gathering world. Yeah. Well, we won't go too far down this rabbit hole, but uh, we could, I'm sure we could discuss. You don't know anything about Hearthstone, do you? No, but I, I'd be happy. We should definitely talk about it some other time. But I, again, <laughs> exactly. it, it is absolutely true that this would make for super compelling video, yeah. uh, super compelling audio as you as you go through and explain the rules of the game. We go back and forth. Well, just what's funny about Hearthstone is is you know Blizzard basically made a collectible card game that has competed with Magic, and it has been the first, I would say, true competitor to Magic, and it's really raised Magic's quality of game design, but it's just that is too far down a rabbit hole. Are Chinese companies better than U.S. companies at blitzscaling? So the best way to put it is Chinese companies are better than U.S. companies at some elements of blitzscaling, and the same as vice versa is also true. So when we looked at China and we looked at this tremendous growth, there are some huge benefits to blitzscaling in China. The availability of skilled labor, the number of educated engineers, all of these things are off the charts. And China operates on this incredible time frame where people are just going so hard that if you want to blitzscale in China, you have to be even more dedicated. One of the examples is Lei Jun, who is the founder of Xiaomi. And he told Reed, you know, you Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are lazy. Here at Xiaomi, we have a 996 policy, which is everyone needs to be at their desk from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. And the kind of workaholism is to the point where, again, I think you could argue at some points it becomes counterproductive, but there are times during crunch time when having the ability to do that is really powerful. On the other hand, as I said, constraint breeds creativity. And 
when you remove some of those constraints, as a result, uh, I think a lot of Chinese companies have not necessarily had to operate as efficiently. And they're still getting to, they're still figuring out, you know, a lot of Chinese companies prefer to just look within and just have the managers be promoted from within. And there's less of the cross-fertilization and bringing in people from the outside. So I think that there are ways in which it is different. It's not necessarily better, not necessarily worse. But I will say that obviously, if you look at economic growth over the past 25 years, China is probably the single biggest, most important story there is. Last question. The chess versus Dungeons and Dragons question was was kind of inspired by these interviews and discussions I've seen between Reid Hoffman and Peter Thiel. And Peter Thiel, of course, is famously a chess aficionado. Reid Hoffman is, I learned recently in, in his podcast, he's a Dungeons and Dragons aficionado. I find it really interesting because they are friends, but they have these strongly divergent viewpoints on a lot of things. Yes. What could Peter Thiel and Reid Hoffman learn from each other? Well, Reed has told me the story of how they were introduced, which is hilarious because they were both at Stanford and the way they were introduced is they said, well, there's this guy, he's totally the opposite of you in every way, but you're both really smart. I think you guys should meet because Peter Thiel is this arch conservative. He started the Stanford Review at Stanford. Reed, of course, is a huge funder of the Democratic Party and is very much a progressive and, but they came together because they were both intellectuals who enjoyed not just you know sitting here in an echo chamber speaking with people who agree with them but really engaging with people out there who have the kind of intellectual firepower to go at it and i think that it was one of those things where it felt like i think they sparked right from the start so i think that it is really interesting how they can learn from each other because they have pursued very different paths but they've both had this huge influence on the world and rather than speaking to sort of the specifics of their relationship, I'll relay another funny story that is another odd couple. So one of the things I learned, and I don't know if this came out in the interviews for our class at Stanford, but for a long time, Brian Chesky and Travis Kalanick would have dinner together once a month because they were the only people in the world who were doing the kind of thing that they were doing. And apparently after each dinner, because these guys are like the polar opposites, right. again, completely different from each other in every way. After each dinner, Travis would say, you know, maybe I should try being nicer. And Brian would come away and say, you know, maybe I should be more aggressive. <laughs> so I wonder. That uh, anecdote was in a Brad Stone book, by the way. There you go. So it was not falsified. Perfect. Oh, fantastic. So, And I again, I trust Brad Stone's reporting. He is a, I love a really Stone. good reporter and, and a great writer. So I think that it is something that all of us can do, which is to, if we have a friend who is very different from us, that is a great opportunity. When people say, wow, I value diversity, but then they only spend time with people who think exactly like them, I'm like, yeah, that's not diversity right there. In order to va truly value diversity, you have to spend time with people that think differently than you. 
obviously they're people you need to respect. They're people you need to like. Like I don't advocate, hey, let me go. I mean, there's a guy, an amazing fellow, an African-American musician who goes and meets clan members and just by speaking with them often gets them to leave the clan. I'm like, wow, that's amazing, first of all, but that's not what I'm going to recommend for everyone to do. That seems just a little dangerous, but do seek out people who think differently because that kind of diversity is going to help sharpen your thinking. Chris Yeh, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking. A huge pleasure, Jeff. This is something that I really enjoyed and would love to do again. Wow.